You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast. Stories of common grace and common people for the common good. Today, we welcome back Greg Boyd to the podcast. If you aren't familiar with him or with his work, feel free to go back and listen to his episodes with us on intellectual idolatry as well as Christian nationalism. Today, we ask him some tough questions that many skeptics and deconstructors may have. Let's see what Greg has to say about these topics and how to navigate these types of conversations and around them. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Well, I want to welcome Greg Boyd to the podcast again. Thanks for joining us once again. And it's really an honor and privilege to be here. Our listeners have really resonated with the past conversations that we've had on the podcast together. So I think this is going to be really great. Well, is it okay if we, um, we shift to talking a little bit about deconstruction? Let's do. When I started our church plant, we saw a, an enormous amount of conversion growth. A lot of people who are very far from God or had no spiritual background at all. We're in the Northwest. There's a post-Christian culture that's been here for a while. It's accelerating, like you've mentioned before. It's growing. And Christians who are used to being at the centers of influence and power are now getting pushed to the margins. There's all kinds of reactions, even tantrums around that kind of thing that you see in, in Christendom or the Christian world. But we, we were at one point about 60% new Christians or non, not yet Christians. They, they, they were just exploring the way of Jesus, interested in it. Then we had you know, people who were religious and had grown up in church and, and kind of learning to have a relationship with Jesus. Right now, I am seeing a, a wave like I've never seen before of what many people call deconstruction, when I was going through college, we called it skepticism, a reframing of faith, and, and I've just seen a theme of broken trust with faith and other organizations too and other uh, institutions. But there is something in the water. Just This is what I'm seeing in our area. I don't know if it's something you're seeing, but just a wave of reframing trust in church, and some of it's about church and church systems, some of it's totally about faith, some of it in Christ, or it's both. And when I've been talking with people who are going through deconstruction— and uh, is it okay if I just read a few responses when I asked them how they viewed the church and then maybe just get your response? Sure. Here's a few quotes that I've gotten. This is from people who are going through a reframing, deconstructing, skeptic journey. Mm-hmm. All right. One response was, it feels like the American church is all about rules that don't love people. Another response was, church seems like a group with a lot of conspiracy theories going around. Mm. Another response was, I see fracturing in church. I had good, good friends move away to Texas where they could be with like-minded people. There was an observation of just how, how strange and how much of that they're seeing. Another quote was, church is a place where people are quickly dismissed if you don't agree with the pastor or the church. You're out. If you have doubts, you're out. And here's just a few other responses that I th- just had some resonance, I thought. The teaching I received hasn't prepared me for suffering. Mm. This person said, as a minority, whenever bringing up racial and social justice issues, said it was my problem, just my problem. The church denied my experiences. And then finally, I was talking with someone from the medical profession going through a bit of this journey, and they said most of their coworkers are not Christians, yet they practice more compassion than many of the Christians they know. So after just hearing some of those those responses from people about what the church seems like to them. Talk with me about how you see that as a pastor and theologian. What's your response? Well, it's, it's just utterly tragic, George. I mean, it, it's just, um, 
Yeah, we're supposed to be known by our love, by John 13, 35. Here's how they'll know that I've sent you, that it's by your love. And so it, it was our love, you know, doing, living love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. The way that God poured himself out for us is the way we're supposed to be pouring out towards others and to see them flourishing. So that's what the church is called to do. And to have letters like you just read, it's a testament to just how miserably the church is failing at our most fundamental task. I've actually found that, I mean, in, in some ways, the tragedy is that the vehicle that was supposed to be the means by which God reached the world, because the church was supposed to demonstrate his love and bring the good news of, of reconciliation to all people and to demonstrate that. But the very thing that was supposed to be the main vehicle of bringing people into the kingdom has become the main obstacle of people coming to the kingdom. It's not Jesus that people have trouble with. It's, it's the Christians. I would like just to say it's just the extreme right wing or the extreme left wing or whatever, but but uh, it, it's it's not. It, it's a it's a huge bulk of the church. Now, thank God that there are folks who are bearing witness to what is the real good news and to what the gospel is really about and to what Jesus was really about, and they're not letting themselves get pulled into the toxic, ever intensifying polarization of this country. And they refuse to see other people as their enemies or to demonize anybody, you know, because they understand that we're called to love everybody. And thank God for that. And, and I can't say that that group's growing massively, but my sense is anecdotally that it is growing. People are hungry for that. It's one of the reasons why I think Woodland Hills has been growing is, is that people uh, want an alternative to the flag-waving, you know, nationalistic versions of Christianity that what you get is all this toxic hatred going on in, in the culture and, and all the culture wars and all that. And, 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 and so people just slap the label Christian on the one side or the other. And, um, and, and so then whoever disagrees with that political position is going to not be open to their gospel. That should never, ever, ever happen. You know, I can't imagine, you know, that Jesus weighing in on pro Caesar or pro taxes or whatever. People tried to get him to do that. And he always refused. You know, he, he knew what his bullseye was. It was the kingdom. And he wouldn't let himself get pulled to one way or the other. Some of the groups would say, well, those, those folks don't really know what love is. You know, they don't understand true love. That's why they think we're just standing up for truth. But no, you know, if you're called to love somebody, they're the ones who get to say whether you're loving or not. <laughs> Ask the person, do you feel loved? And if they say no, well, then you're not communicating your love very well. No. Yeah. How do you, how do you cultivate and encourage people to cultivate in their church, but also, I think probably first and foremost, their own lives? That kind of kingdom unit unitive approach, like being able to love people who disagree with them and learn from them, but not just totally dismiss them, but also not be led by their their idol in a sense. Because every every person that comes into our church doors or into your family, from a certain perspective, there, there's a blind spot or an idol that can easily be guiding them. So, how do you create unity without letting the idols lead? I'm not sure. Uh... But we just rally around Jesus. I mean, you major in the major and minor in the minors. To me, the, the whole benchmark is, are we loving others the way Christ loved us? Are we sacrificing for others? Are we giving up some of our conveniences for the sake of others and for the earth and the animal kingdom? Because we're called to love both. That's the bullseye. And the, so we hammer that all the time. And it affects our ministry. You know, the Apostle Paul, several times in his letters, he expresses some consternation towards disciples that he's talking to because he says i must present you fully mature on that day okay there's a day coming and he realizes that he's somewhat accountable for their maturity 
He never worries about how many he has. Does that ever scare you as a pastor that we're accountable? Yes, <laughs> it, it does. And, and so my bullseye is not get as many people as possible. My bullseye is get as authentic people as possible, like mature mm. folks. And I found that it's much easier to draw a big crowd in consumer America than it is to make disciples. Mm. Uh, my, making disciples is the tough stuff. And it shouldn't surprise me because in my own life, that's the tough stuff. You know, it's easy to know a lot. It's not, it's hard, much harder to live it out hmm. consistently, but. Uh, and that's coming from, how many, how many books have you written? So someone who's only written 22 books is, is saying it's easy to know something. It's hard to, it's hard to love. It's hard to live it out. Yeah. At our church, I, I, there's a permanent assignment that people have. Can't force anyone to do anything, but I strongly encourage this. And that is to make a list of the one to five people or groups that you loathe, mm. uh, that you, you that you have the hardest time loving, mm. and pray for them every day. Make it a daily practice because you got to flex that muscle. You know, it, it, we don't ordinarily have a chance to flex that muscle. Although, you know, if, if we're really serious about it, we get a chance all the time. I mean, the news station that represents the view that you deplore and, and just practice staying in love. Uh, looking past the opinions, looking past with, and and agreeing with God that they have unsurpassable worth. Mm. Uh, that's a, that's a tremendous exercise. But we need to be flexing that muscle. And you know, Jesus said uh, in Matthew five, "You've heard it said that you should love your friends but hate your enemies." But I'm telling you, love your enemies, and and bless those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For it causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. And so the father loves indiscriminately, like the rain falls, like the sun shines. Well, that's how we're supposed to love. There's no off button to this. And the father loves not based on the merits of the person in front of him, because he, he, he loves the just and the unjust. And so also our love can't, it doesn't depend on the merits of the person in front of us, whether they're a friend or a foe, or even holding a gun to our head. Our call is always the same, to love them, to bless them. And that's the radical, beautiful gospel. And that's the bullseye. If you rather on that, Who's got time to, I mean, we can have discussions on politics and all that, but even that we have to be doing it in love. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, everything you do, let everything you do be done in love. And so I always tell folks, if, if you're ever in a political or theological debate and winning the debate becomes more important than communicating to that person that you love them, then do the kingdom a favor and shut up. Because you you can win the debate intellectually, but you've lost it if you're not doing it in love. Mm. Love's the only value giver to the kingdom. First Corinthians 13 tells us that. Mm. Without love, everything else is worthless. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, this is the, the all-encompassing bullseye. They're not just principles. When I'm hearing them from you, it's like, this is, this is kingdom life. This is about living. But there's no off button to love. I love how you just kind of um, subverted the political idol that anybody can carry into their life into their church and their community and subvert it toward by putting Jesus in the center and saying, Hey, this is, yeah. this is what we're shooting toward. You know, if you just shoot at that one bullseye, you'll bump into everything else that is not supposed to be there. And so like, I, I never realized how much judgment I carried in the autopilot of this organic computer between my ears, uh, chatter about people until I committed to loving every person that I encounter. I came to the conclusion that I'm only allowed one opinion of every person that I meet, unless they've invited me in on their life to speak into their life. I'm only allowed one opinion. And that's the one that I'm given by God on Calvary. 
that they were worth Jesus dying for, mm. which means that they have unsurpassable worth. Mm. And my job is to agree with God about, about that. So I just practice blessing people and, and you know, loving on them. And then you, you'll find all of a sudden you'll, you'll catch yourself when you're gossiping about them. Like, oh, I can't believe that we wear something like that. Oh, it's, they're really a this or that, or all the categories we're putting people in, whatever. I never noticed how much it was going on until I intentionally did something else. And, and now I try to train my brain so that whenever the chatter comes on, oh, what a disgusting this or that, whatever, that it serves to remind me of what I'm supposed to be doing. And what I'm supposed to be doing is blessing them and loving them. I can have opinions whether I agree or disagree or whether I think they're trustworthy or not, or you know, whether I'm babysit my granddaughter or not. You have to have those kind of opinions, but at the base of it all, you have to agree with God about everyone's unsurpassable worth. Mm. How do people respond when you when you tell them to think of their top four or five most loathed people channels and and start praying for that? How do how do you see people respond? Well, what I've gotten back is is like like whoa, that is really really hard. Can't you just that teach is- us theology and leave this love stuff out? It, 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 it's uh yeah there's no theology without the love stuff but uh yeah it, it is very very hard i remember when this it was in the late 90s and uh the wagons were circling around me because of the old openness controversy and for two years straight there was a bunch of pastors who were trying to get me fired from bethel and and you know, all, all this kind of stuff and at one point there's a lot of nastiness that's where it was circulating but at one point I, I got a call from my publisher and they just informed me that uh, one particular pastor who was very well known uh, was going to bring a lawsuit against his publisher because they published. It, it tarnishes his reputation to be in the same publishing house as as Greg Boyd. So he was going to draw the lawsuit, and then we're doing a boycott on any bookstores that would carry my books. And and there's one point where I you know I was really getting angry, <laughs> and um, the Lord spoke to me in the in such a clear way because I, I this is not the kind of thing I would ever make up on my own. But the Lord gave me this assignment that for a year, I was supposed to pray for this man and his ministry and his family every day and, and genuinely play blessing on them. And uh, at first, it was like pulling teeth. And, like, God, just bless this son of a sucker. <laughs> now, it, yeah, it, it is because you're crucifying the flesh is what yeah. you're doing. That self-righteous part of me that wants to be better and, you know. And, and you got to crucify that. But that's see, that's what I mean by that's the muscle we always got to be flexing because we're supposed to be crucifying that, that flesh. See, but we're so addicted to convenience and having it nice and having it our way and the, the, the path of least resistance that we've gotten so soft. We, you know, we're, we're just we don't like anything that is at all inconveniencing to us. We live with this entitlement that we should always get it you know, the absolute best and it should come easy and all the rest. Because everything else in life is, when you think of all the conveniences that technology has given to us. But that's why it's all the more important for disciples. Disciple means you're disciplined. And so we have to impose disciplines on ourselves to regularly do stuff that our flesh doesn't want to do. Otherwise, our flesh will be winning and we won't even notice it. Mm. Oh. And developing that character of love is, like, that is an arduous like it's a painful sometimes like you were describing process it's not like some technology or the advancements in technology have made it easier for us to learn how to love or sometimes like charismatic moments where people are wanting the movement of the spirit well that doesn't necessarily develop the character of love in us either like we have to develop that and choose that and want that right in fact you can make the case that technology causing us to love less uh it, it, it tends to isolate 
we don't have to interface with our neighbors anymore. We can, you know, and so we, we're living these increasingly isolated existences, not knowing our neighbors, but getting on the internet and talking to strangers who always agree with us. And so we get our character formed according to whatever, you know, wormhole we fell down in, in the internet. And, and, and yet, so it all works against the whole idea of character development and love. It, it's not, that's not a, it, on most people's radar screen. But from a keynote perspective, the goal of every day is to be the most loving version of yourself as you could possibly be. That's the mm. number one goal of the day. Loving God, loving the other as yourself, mm. loving the earth and the animal kingdom. Mm. If you believe that there really is right and wrong, that morality exists, then I submit to you that it's self-evident that all of us have a moral obligation to be the best selves that we can be. Mm. That's self-evident. If you believe that there is good, yeah, to be the as good as you can be. And we know that from the kingdom perspective, that is to be as loving as you can be, loving neighbor as yourself. Oh, that's so good. Let's go back to some of the the perspective of, and I know that it's not a monolithic perspective, deconstruct. Everybody has a different, very unique story and very unique hurts, pains, often legitimate, you know, barriers. Oh, yeah. Usually legitimate. Yeah, usually they are. So when you consider that, how are you seeing people go through a phase like this of deconstruction? Are you seeing people going through a, a sense of broken trust? And how, how are you pastoring? How are you loving and leading in, in, in that reality? Yeah, it, it's, uh, uh, we are seeing that. It doesn't sound like we're seeing it to the extent that you are, but, but regularly, a good portion of the folks that come to Woodland Hills Church are people that are in some process of deconstruction. They're, they're coming out of usually a more rigid evangelical faith. And, and now they're trying to put the pieces together, you know. And, and so, yeah, that's a part of our where we're dealing. It's also been a time of, it's been rather discouraging for me, actually. Uh, I have had, in trying to help people through this deconstruction process, I've had three folks that I've mentored very closely and poured into. And I always make the same covenant with them, is that I want to, you know, be in dialogue with you about your belief system and, and you know, read books and kind of a teaching kind of a thing. And that's what they wanted. But the covenant was just always be honest with me, okay, whatever you're thinking, you know, and, and please just be honest with me. And all three cases, these folks bailed on Christianity and never let on that that's what was going on. They, they always cut me off the case of one person I confronted them on. And they said, well, I don't want you to change my mind, you know. And, and, and so and that's the scary thing about deconstruction is you create a momentum as you're coming out of and all three of these folks come out of. Oh, two of the three came out of very strict backgrounds. And so they get a new kind of freedom. Women ministry, oh, that, that's exciting. And, and there's this new kind of exci fun excitement. Uh, it, it's okay to read the Bible honestly and not have to think that it's a perfect book and, and, and things like this. But then they, there's no stopping point. Uh, they, they, they keep on going further. Well, then why believe anything at all? And they can float out in the outer space. And so what I and Paul Eddy also, you know, I have done this together in mentoring folks, but we're always looking at how do we help people not throw the authentic Jesus following baby out with the necessary deconstruction bathwater. I think I just butchered that metaphor. But no, I'm tracking with you. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah. One question I had around that is for Christians who maybe haven't gone through that stage yet, or, you know, just have, have a different way of looking at things. And a lot of pastors, I think, would maybe even fall in that. It's very easy to maybe almost condemn somebody who is honestly struggling through faith and almost say, well, there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with their faith. And how would you speak to people who have a hard time understanding those who are going through that? Well, there's not something wrong with their faith. There's something right with their faith. Mm. 
I mean, because we have to, as human beings, if you're at all curious, if you have any kind of intellectual curiosity at all, you have to question your beliefs. I mean, there are people who do this, but it's not a rational thing to do, where you just assume that everything you were taught in eighth grade Sunday school class is the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and you lock that in. And see, here's the thing. One of the major problems is that a lot of folks think that your faith is as strong as you are certain of something. Your faith is as strong as you are doubt-free. Oh, Joe, there, he, his faith is so strong in the Bible, he's never questioned it once. But that's a psychological model of faith. But see, if people have that, well, then we lock in in eighth grade that to be saved, I need to believe these 18 things or whatever. Then they'll have a built-in phobia about it, you know, because if they start to waver, well, then they might lose their salvation. Yeah. And 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 so there's a built-in learning phobia. And I, I have met folks that have, can have a PhD in some field and they're super smart. But when it comes to talking theology, they're back in eighth grade. Yeah. They just insulated that part of their brain. You yeah. Know, it's just kind of over, over here. Nothing else is allowed to really, you know, touch it. it see, biblically speaking, the, the Bible's conception of faith is not psychological. They weren't into their head the way we are. It, it was rather covenantal. And so what matters in faith, it's not how psychologically certain you are that you're going to have a certain outcome or or whatever. It's rather your commitment to live a certain way, to live as though this was true. And so like in Hebrews 11, those folks, they're all heroes of the faith. None of them got what they were looking for in this lifetime, but they're all commended because they were living a certain way. They were looking for that promised land that ultimately is not of this world. So faith is not the antithesis of doubt. It's like when you get married, you know, how certain you are that this is going to be a happy ever after on the, on the level meter is not really important as long as you're certain enough. And there's always a risk. Faith is always about a risk. But you say, I do, in the hopes that this will be happy ever after. And with the commitment to work to, to making that, that, that happen. Is that what you mean by covenantal? You want to make this covenant. To have a covenant is to say, I will live as a we. Whatever the terms of the covenant are, I will live as a we, not a me. It's that whole new reality of us there. Faith isn't the antithesis of doubt. And people should never feel guilty about having doubts. What you want to do is to ask the question, why do you have the doubts? And are they legitimate or are they illegitimate? You know, I've had times where I just have felt I had to pretend like I believe nothing and ask the question, why do I believe any of this? And you start from the ground up. Why do I believe in God? Why do I believe in this kind of God? Why do I think Jesus is the perfect revelation of God? Mm -hmm. Why do I think scripture is authoritative? And why do I still continue to believe in the church? And I found that every time I've deconstructed it and then reconstructed it, I end up believing fewer things. But the few things I believe, I believe with more confidence than I ever had before. I bet some listeners here would be really surprised at a pastor saying that they've gone down to the the foundations and did some deconstruction of of some bad materials on the building and and then put another foundation and built things back from the ground up. That would be surprising for a lot of people. Do you have a response to that? Well, uh, is it surprising in a good way or a bad way? I guess you know, I'm, I, pastors are humans. I, I think you have to do that once in a while. You know, I'm part of a church system. You know, I started this church 30 years ago. And, and this happened maybe 15 years ago. So the church is like 15 years old or so. And all social systems have a, a built-in momentum to them where it, it, it tries to keep you the same, especially if you're the pastor of a church. But the thing is, is we're always evolving. I think we should, always should be evolving. I, at least, am always reading and always curious about things. So my world gets a little bigger and bigger. 
but the social system doesn't let you evolve necessarily. It, it wants you to stay the same. And I had to take a break from the system in order to grow up to where my faith really was. It's like I, I, my old faith was no longer adequate to accommodate the new world that I had. Mm-hmm. And this is what you get with a lot of kids when they go off to college. If they're not adequately prepared for what they're going to find there, they come into this world that's much bigger than they thought it was and much more complex than they ever thought it was with a lot more questions than they ever thought it, it would have. And their faith, that eighth grade faith that they were so certain in, gets blown apart. Or they can manage to insulate it somehow. But that that's getting harder and harder to do. We've had you know many people who have been impacted by a number of different painful things in their faith journey, especially around churches. There's a large church that you'd probably be really familiar with that imploded in the Seattle area. And uh, we've seen a lot of spiritual refugees you know, floating on the oceans of and tides yeah. of the ether. They're not sure what to do with their life, and, and can they trust it? a church again? One one of the smartest guys I've ever talked to who's going through this, and it's been extremely painful for him. I mean, he as he was starting to question things, he lost friends and, and standing within the church that he was in. There was a, almost like a shunning. It was really surprising because it's it's not like an unknown type of uh, denomination or group of people. You, it was just, it was he was like shocked. He couldn't believe it, felt really ostracized. And one of his questions that he asked me was, um, you know, I, I gave so much time, energy, money to the building of this thing that was so abusive and hurtful to me and to so many other people. And I know there's good in there. I know that there's some good things have happened, but I, it has been so awful for me and my family. Mm. I don't know that I can ever trust a, a church again. I like, h- how can I trust a church? How can I trust that time, energy, money isn't going to be something that I'm, I'm not building something like that again? What would you say to people who yeah. are like really struggling? Can, like, can I trust the church? Can I trust a community? Yeah. Why should I trust a, a, a faith community? Well, you're hitting the nail on the head. I think a lot of people are having that very sentiment. Um, and then, you know, it comes out with all the sex abuse that has gone on and swept under the rug uh, with the Southern Baptist Church and the Catholic Church, and it's happened all over the place. What's that line in the Old Testament that you've, you've given the enemies of God uh, cause for unbelief? The church on the whole has you know, justified people rejecting the church. I always find that when I'm having conversations with people, first of all, if they ask me if I'm a Christian, I never say yes. And I've had a lot of conversations that I'm sure I wouldn't have had if I would have said, yes, I'm a Christian. Because I, I I don't know what they mean by that word. And often what they mean by that word is, is negative or even worse is the word evangelical. Yeah. I usually just say, I, I, I try to follow Jesus. I think that's the best way to live. And then we have a conversation. And in those conversations, often what I'm trying to do is to help people see Jesus apart from the church. This one lady, the whole plane ride, she saw that I was reading a theology book and she asked if I was a Christian. And I said, no, but I try to follow Jesus. And she said, I used to. And then we got this conversation. She told me this horror story about growing up in a Southern Baptist home and the, you know, all the, she was never good enough, never holy enough, never whatever. So she rebelled against the whole thing. And um, she's tried back at church a few times, but nothing ever really worked. One of the best evangelism strategies today, unfortunately, is to side with the unbeliever against the church because <laughs> the perceptions are usually dead on. And so I just empathize with her. And, you know, yeah, the church, I even went up the ante and you look at the church historically, they've done, they tortured people and all the rest, you know. But at some point, I was able to just say, but what's interesting is that Jesus wasn't at all like that. And I talked about Jesus and how he responded to the woman caught in adultery and 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 you know, how he's a friend of the prostitutes and hung out with the prostitutes. And because and that was one of the things you're never allowed to have any non-Christian friends. 
And by the time we landed the plane, this woman was in tears. Because if you could just show Jesus is beautiful. Everyone at some level is hungry for that kind of love. And I'm sad, sorry that the folks that were supposed to represent him instead got in the way. Instead of being windows through which you could see the beauty of Christ, there's so much mud, all you can see is mud. But Jesus is beautiful. And then maybe like with this friend of yours, it could be the case that a large church or something is, is going to be untrustworthy for him. But I would hope you would find a community of people who are trustworthy. And, and their trust isn't demanded. Uh, it, it's rather it's a rather one. You, you become part of a community and trust that is slowly built among, among the people. That's really the primary unit of the kingdom, in my view. What would you do on, on the weekend? In having a public service? That's great. That's an expression of the body of Christ. But the, the real primary unit of the church is not a once-a-week gathering with strangers. It, it's living life out in relationship with others. And so I, I would encourage a friend to find a house church or you know, some kind of community like that. Mm. I imagine there might even be some listeners that could feel a little bit like that plane passenger you were talking about that you were sitting next to. And they might even be feeling emotional right now, like mixed emotions, hope, and then also hurt. If you could, you know, just imagine in your mind's eye that you're talking to some some people right now who feel that way. You're sitting with them on the plane. What would you What would you say to them? How would you encourage them? And what would you say? Well, I guess I like as I just said, I, I try to distinguish Jesus from the church, and as much as possible, try to help them to you know find the beauty of the the, the true good news, and not hold God responsible for what people do. It depends on what stage of struggling they're at. Is their struggle a personal issue, like with regard to a church, or is it more deeply rooted intellectual doubts? If the second one, you know, I, I always go back to my thinking about, like, why do I think God exists? And it ultimately, it's, I think either love wins or this whole thing is a big joke. And it makes more sense to me to live with the hope that love wins than it does to live with, without any kind of hope. But then you ask, why would I think Jesus is anything more than, than a myth or a legend or whatever? And there, there's this very good historical reasons for concluding that Jesus Christ was as the Gospels represent him. If folks want to find out more about that, Pauliani and I put a book together called The, the Jesus Legend, in which we go after every possible legendary thesis that's out there. And I think we do a pretty good job of, of, of dismantling it. And so I, knowing why I believe in Jesus and then I, why I believe in the Bible. I talk about this, this way of organizing your faith in the book Benefit of the Doubt. Think of it in terms of concentric circles. So the center of the center for me is, is Jesus Christ crucified. I know why I believe that Jesus was fully God and fully human, died on the cross. And that tells me everything I need to know about God, everything I need to know about myself, and everything I need to know about any other person. God's the kind of God who would love me in my sin. And God thought I, I and every other person was worth dying for, which means we have unsurpassable worth. All my life, my worth, my significance, I want to get from that. Because if you're not getting it from your relationship with Christ, you're going to tend to get it from your beliefs about Christ. And you fall in love with your own rightness. And that's what makes you feel like you're a special person of God. And then, you know, because Jesus affirmed the Bible as a divine authority, I affirm the Bible as a divine authority. And I have other considerations, you know, that I, I would mix in that as well. But it's really knowing why you believe. If I know why I believe in my head, then it doesn't matter how other Christians act. No, it, it does matter. It inevitably makes a difference. But in terms of my why I believe or not should not depend on someone else's behavior. Mm. Get your own reasons for, for why you think this is true. Mm. Oh, Greg, this you've been as dynamic, passionate, and caring as ever. And I just want to thank you for this conversation. 
is there anything you that that's kind of in the back of your mind you wanted wanted to add to this conversation before we close? No, I I think that uh, coming back to this the centrality of love is everything. That's the bullseye. It is the one thing that gives value to anything we do. First Corinthians thirteen tells us we can speak in tongues, we can prophesy, you can have all knowledge, understand all mystery, do these righteous deeds. But it's altogether worthless. It's a clinging symbol, devoid of kingdom value, unless it's done in love. In the end, I, I, love is the only thing that's eternal. God is love, and that's one thing that never began and will never end. And we are, we're eternalized by participating in that love. When the kingdoms come in fullness, it, the only things that will be existing is, is God's love and everything that reflects that love. So everything else has got to be purged away with. Everything the New Testament tells us, it's better for us to purge it now than to have it purged later. So, yeah, this is the bullseye. Live in love as Christ loved us. He gave his life for us. Greg Boyd, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Garden City podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please email us at info at gardencitynw.com. If you want to support the podcast, please rate and review it or share it with your friends. And if you'd like to contribute to what Garden City is doing with this podcast, you can give at gardencitynw.com give. Thanks for listening.